Today, we're continuing in our sermon series on uh, women and the story of Scripture. And today, we're going to talk about a group of women that are mentioned very briefly in Scripture, but they can teach us quite a bit about ways that we can follow and serve Christ, and honestly, the ways in which men and women interact, because our culture has this weird dynamic that we sometimes build up. Story before we begin. There are many, many teachers that I enjoy, and a lot of the teachers that I enjoy fall into very conservative camps of people who uh, teach Scripture. And if you don't know my story, I've been a pastor for about 10 years now. For five of those, I was bivocational, so I worked two jobs. One of the jobs I worked was at uh, FedEx doing phone customer service. Woot. Not my favorite job I've ever had. Not because I disliked the company. The company was cool, but because I disliked the work. The work was hard. So I did that full-time and pastored full-time on the side. And then I got married, and that was a hard thing to add in whenever I was both working full-time and pastoring full-time. And so I only did those three things together for a year, (laughs) right? Because it was rough. But after that first year, uh, my wife and I, uh, we have a good enough income through my wife's work, that I was able to let go of my job and just focus on pastoring full-time, even though it couldn't technically pay me to do so, right? So I shifted away from FedEx, shifted into ministry full-time, and my wife is the main income winner of our house. And by main, I mean I bring in like $7 a year, and she brings in the rest, okay? Now, a lot of these conservative teachers that I love uh, teach a type of Christianity known purely as complementarianism. This is the fact that men and women were made separately and differently, and that we have different strengths and weaknesses, and that one of the things that we as followers of Christ must do is identify what these things are. Side note, I don't wholly disagree with that. I still kind of agree with it. But I think one thing that happens often is we inject from our culture things that we think should be masculine traits or feminine traits. And then we say that if you don't do these things that our culture says is masculine, you're not serving Christ well. Some of the teachers that I listened to taught that I, by not making more money than my wife, am not properly leading her, and therefore I'm not a biblical man. Right? Weird, interesting concept, because I could work for the largest church in Canton, Ohio, likely as their head pastor, and I wouldn't touch my wife's salary. (laughs) It's impossible for me in my training to do it. The rest of my training is in history. I could be the highest paid history professor in Ohio, and I seriously would probably make $20 a week. I'm just tossing it out there. History professors don't make that much money, guys. There's no possible way for me to make more money than my wife unless my wife was willing to quit working. She would have to choose not to make money in order for that to work. And they would argue that's what she's supposed to do. And they would say she's supposed to do that from the Bible. Because otherwise she's not submitting to her husband. Blah, 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 blah. It's all really weird. So one thing that's worth noting is let's examine this culturally. Can anyone think of any men in scripture who didn't provide for their own income, but relied on the income of women to serve as God called them to serve? Thanks. Luke 8, 1 through 3. In Luke 8, 1 through 3, read this. Soon afterward, he, he being Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. 
and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Fun story. Jesus and his disciples were able to do the ministry they were able to do because several prominent women were willing to provide for them financially. Now, could Jesus have found other sources of income? Perhaps this dude can make bread out of nothing. He can probably provide for himself. I'm just opening a bakery over here. It's cool. We have really low overhead. Okay? But he accepted gifts from women to be able to continue in his ministry. He and his disciples relied on it. Now, this is a fun concept because it sort of blows that whole cultural argument that women have to make less money than their dudes out of the water because Jesus accepted not just, say, a wife's income. He accepted random women's income. He didn't have any, right? Made me feel a lot better. I'm going to be honest. Like, oh, good. I'm like Jesus a little bit in one way. One way, lacking the beard, lacking the holiness, women support my ability to do ministry. Okay, I got one thing. All right. But we can recognize from this that sometimes culture injects it that we view our relationship with God and with others. My first takeaway of this sermon is this. Culture is not the same thing as Scripture. And that I'm speaking heavily into the church. Because it's true outside of the church as well. Regular culture is not scripture. But the culture within the church is not scripture either. Scripture is scripture. It is our highest authority. We go there to determine how we are to live and move and understand our relationship with God. And we can learn about ourselves and our relationship with others through it more than we can through culture. One thing that is worth doing as we exist within our culture, is if we are listening to uh, our own understanding and someone slightly challenges as to whether or not ending is a cultural or a scriptural thing, be willing to look back into scripture and see if the whole of scripture teaches the thing you're learning about, right? I would argue, oh, do I say it? Yes, I say it. That the way in which we combine nationalism and Christianity within the church is one of those cultural things that has injected itself into the church in the U.S. Most early Christians would not have considered themselves first Roman citizens and then followers of Christ. They would have considered themselves followers of Christ who happened to live in the Roman Empire. We as a church should probably have the same kind of mindset. Fun story as well. Uh, there were Roman soldiers who refused to bow to the standards of Rome and were killed for it, and they're martyrs. But in the church today, sometimes we actually demonize people for not bowing to the standards of our nation. Culture is not scripture. Scripture is scripture. Culture is culture. Now, that's a weird takeaway to take from this, but it makes sense. It allows us to see that sometimes the things that we inject into Christianity from our culture are not actually part of Christianity. Uh, I would tend to argue that anything Jesus did is probably not sinful. Right? But more things to this as well. Jesus 
was surrounded by many people as he went throughout and proclaiming the good news. We often think of Jesus wandering around with just 12 guys, right? But in this chapter, we hear, in this section, we hear about some women who are with him as well. And in later chapters, we hear about groups of 72 that are with him. And then we hear about other crowds that are with him as well. Jesus, uh, much of his ministry was defined by the way in which he interacted with these 12 and sent these 12 out. But it's worth noting that many other people were following Christ at the same time. We sometimes hold up the apostles and the disciples as this is what our relationship with God primarily is supposed to look like, like or in our relationship with each other, we should be disciples of Christ. And that's true, and that's good. And many other people besides these 12 were disciples. But it's also worth noting this. Some of these people didn't go with him, right? Uh, some of these people hung out and provided for those who were going out outside of their means. We truly believe that we are all called to be disciples of Christ. But not all disciples function in the same way. Not everyone is called to be one of the 12 wandering with Jesus everywhere or one of the 72 wandering with Jesus everywhere. Some are called to provide for those who are doing those things. Some are called to be praying for those who are doing those things. Some are called to be caring for other sections of the church. Like, whenever we start reading further out in the book of Acts, we'll see that there are sometimes churches that are called by God specifically to help other areas of the church that are in need. Uh, Not everybody just took up wandering preaching. Not everyone just took up giving up all of the stuff that they were doing and then just following around a rabbi. Jesus had disciples who didn't just do that. So, on the one area in our culture, we have what are called, uh, what are they? I don't even have a good word for them, but Sunday Christians, right? People who just go to church on Sunday. Then there are other people who live radically uh, different lives because of Christ. They give up everything they have. They throw everything away. They go into uh, living in community together completely. Uh, Sometimes they'll even step into living in communes, like straight up, oh, we're all going to just live together and do this thing together. Some actually just give up everything and go and street preach and go wander around. And sometimes we as the church will hold out that those groups of people are the super good Christians. When in fact, not everyone is called to the same type of ministry. Some may be called to support ministries like that. And it's not wrong for it to do so. I forget who the author was, but there was an author who wrote about the quiet, godly life of a person who loves Jesus. That their life will change and they will be disciples of Christ, but that doesn't mean their vocation is going to change. It doesn't mean that the majority of the way they spend their time is going to change. It doesn't mean their whole family dynamic is necessarily going to change. Instead, those things that they were doing before now have holy purpose behind them and they're used to glorify him. That is what happened with many of these ladies. Uh, They're talking about the wife of Herod's household manager. She probably didn't just leave the household of Herod and go and wander throughout Galilee for months or years. She likely was still with her husband and with the household duties that she had there too. But she supported the ministry of God. That's a good thing. 
one fun dynamic that I like, I'm going to toss this out here. There are very, very few scriptures that a person who teaches a health and wealth type gospel or a televangelist who wants to get people to just send them in money could use to say, look, it's okay for people to just send preachers money. And this is one of the few they could probably use in context to do that, but they can't because it was women. <laughs> and most of those types of preachers don't hold to women uh, being appropriate household managers of money. It's kind of fun. I'm like, ha ha. Your bad theology is held back because you have bad theology all around. It works out perfect. Anywho. Guys, there are many ways you can support the church. You can support it logistically. You can support it financially. You can support it with your time. You can support it with your effort. You can support it in many ways. You can support what Christ is doing in the world because that's what the church is. It's Christ working in the world. You can give up everything and become a preacher. It's possible if Jesus wants you to. He may not be calling you to that kind of ministry. And that does not make you any less of a Christian than one who lives in a commune. Make sense? Let's get it out here. Sometimes it's hard to actually deal with that one. Sometimes we like to guilt ourselves more so than is appropriate. And we judge and condemn ourselves more than Christ would condemn us, which is weird. Because, you know, we're pretty much deserving of condemnation in the way that we live and act. <laughs> Jesus said, did no one else condemn you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Right? Anywho, as disciples, we are called to serve him. Fun story in the book of Luke as you read through it. There's a fun dichotomy whenever you see Jesus talking to the disciples. Oftentimes the disciples are hard-headed or not understanding what Jesus is saying or not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And there will be women who are spoken of in glowing terms. The contrast Luke uses in the book of Acts is often he uses women in the story to demonstrate what is right to give even more uh, emphasis to how off the disciples sometimes were. And it's pointed out on purpose because to that culture, one would not think that a leader like Jesus would first and foremost be understood and followed by women. The people who read it would be shocked by this. And in fact, uh, if we in our culture read this just straight up without all of the random, yeah, I know this Bible story enough, I got it, and just read it through as it is, in our culture, we'd be shocked by it too. Hey, yeah, the disciples, yeah, oftentimes they're the pig-headed ones that got everything wrong. The random women who were following Jesus, that's who we look to to see, oh, how am I supposed to be functioning as a disciple? <laughs> Fun story, the, the example of the disciples that we use, perhaps not always the best example that we should be following because they didn't get it. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't quite understand what God was doing yet. They didn't understand exactly who Jesus was until he returned. And until he sent the Holy Spirit. Disciples are wonderful examples, but they're not perfect examples for us. Because they're not Jesus. Same deal with the women. Wonderful examples, not perfect examples, because they're not Jesus. We can see what ideal womanhood looks like, though. Uh, philosophically, ideal womanhood, in Jewish culture at least, in the book of Proverbs. 
the end of it, there's chapter 31, which everyone's heard of. Oh, Proverbs 31, woman, blah, 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 blah. I read a cool book called Proverbs 31, man, by the way. That was great. Because it's walking through, like, if these are good qualities for a person following Jesus to have, what can we learn about ourselves through it as well as men? It's interesting. Anywho, in this section of Scripture, Proverbs 31, we read this. The words of King Lemuel, the utterance of which his mother taught him. What, my son? What son of my womb? And what son of my vows? Those of you who are in the Bible study class, please remember that emphasis is often stated in Jewish poetry by things that are repeated over and over again in different ways. She's super saying, come on, pay attention. Right? Do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. So it starts off a little rocky. Don't give yourself to the ones that destroy great men. Weird. It is not for kings of Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all that are afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. So back up real quick. Duh, if you're trying to be wise, don't drink a lot. Not a good idea. And if you're trying to be a wise and just ruler, open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. Be willing to speak for those who can't speak. And your cause should be those who are in dire need, appointed to death. Open your mouth and judge righteously and plead the cause of the poor and needy. And then, who can find a virtuous wife? Kind of a shift. The heart of her husband safely trusts her. He will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings food from afar. She she considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hand to the distaff, her hand to hold the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, supplies satchets for the merchants. Strength and honor her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. This is how the book of Proverbs ends, guys. This whole book of Proverbs that are walking through what does wisdom look like? How are we supposed to live? What is our life supposed to be like? What things are we supposed to define? And it ends on this. This is what a godly woman looks like. And fun story as you read what a godly woman looks like, it echoes back a whole bunch of stuff that were spoken in the book of Proverbs as well. They were holding up the ideal person that follows all of the things that Proverbs says, and they use a woman to do so. This is a wise person. Now, worth noting, again, this is an ideal. Ladies, don't knock yourself down if you don't use your spindle all the time or whatever that one section said, all right? I don't even know what that is. I know it's something to do with making cloth, but that's all I got, all right? 
the point of this is not this is exactly who you can be. This is who we are supposed to be as people, striving to be. And it's fun within there. You'll notice things like she sells fields and she makes profit and she plants things. Hey, she actually provides money for her household and does what she wants. She is a purveyor of merchandise. She sells things. She cares for the needy. She manages her household well. She demonstrates wisdom in all she does. How does that compare to what at times our culture holds up we think women are supposed to be like? Christian culture especially. If your church teaches that their ideal woman is different than the ideal woman that scripture lays out, your church might be speaking culturally. Men, please note, all those things, yes, they apply to you too. This was an ideal pointing out what it looks like whenever someone wholly follows the book of Proverbs and lives appropriately. Guess what? You should do the same thing. Side note again, the book of Proverbs is not a set of promises. It's not if you do this, this will happen. It's if you do this, this is probably what your life will look like. Make sense? We shortchange women a lot. Goodness, we as a church shortchanged women a lot relatively recently. We shouldn't. Women provide examples of blessed living and godly living and holy living for not just women, but men as well. It's weird that we seem to hold up Bible stories and we'll hold up men of faith and say, everyone should be like this. Then we'll hold up women of faith and we'll say, all women should be like this. Like, that just doesn't make sense to me. Stories of righteous people cross gender boundaries. I can learn from Miriam as much as I can learn from David. That may not make sense because David has a lot more words written about him. But I can learn from Miriam in the same way I can learn from David. You can learn from Luke in the same way you can learn from I know there are other women in the Bible. Hulda. Hulda. (gasps) Oh my goodness. Sorry. Side note. Who here knows the story of Jael and the tent pegging? Right? Yeah? Anyone? Yes? No? So in the book of Judges, there's a section where there's this military leader who is fighting against Israel and his entire army gets wiped out, but he escapes. And so he runs and hides and he goes and hides in this tent of a Jewish lady. And her name is Jael. And she's like, oh no, it's cool here. I'll feed you. You go to sleep. And then whenever, whenever the guy goes to sleep, she takes a tent peg, sticks it on his temple and pegs him to the ground. <laughs> okay. And thus ended his military career. <laughs> okay. I mentioned that story for this reason. You ready? We went to Lifeway yesterday, and we bought Anna a book. And it was Brave Women of the Bible. And I pop open the first point of this. It's cool. It's, like, awesome. It's got pictures of girls on it everywhere. And you pop it open. And the first story that pops open is the story of J.L. And they literally say, and here's the gross part. Skip it if you're squeamish. <laughs> they tell the story. I'm like, yes! I can't wait until she's old enough to read this on her own. Because I'll be wimpy and skip those parts. She'll read them. But this book is so cool, guys. And the second one she pulled up was Hulda, which I'm like, yes, I taught about her last week. 
Woo! This book is great. That's what we're going to be reading for Anna out of every night now. She'll be learning about women of the Bible, and so will I. (laughs) Women can be our examples just as much as men can. We were all created in God's image. We're all called to glorify him with our lives. I can learn from them as much as I can learn from Solomon. Possibly more, because Solomon, while being super wise, was also kind of dumb. Final thing. You'll notice that with all these women that are being spoken of, and all the men that are being spoken of, there's a lot of scripture in this today. All of the non-Jesus people being spoken of here, the disciples of the twelve, the women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, the women like, uh, like Joanna and Susanna who provided for Jesus out of their funds. Who did all these people's lives revolve around? Jesus, right? All submitted themselves to him in some way, shape, or form. Some gave up everything, the disciples. We say they gave up everything, but a lot of those guys went back to fishing right away, and boats weren't very easy to purchase back then. They still held on to their stuff. But they gave up time and gave it to Jesus. These women gave up time and gave it to Jesus. Some of these women gave up money and gave it to Jesus. The disciples, for the rest of the books of Acts, and God, uh, for the rest of the book of Acts, they gave all of their life to Jesus. Paul calls for people to give their lives to Jesus. James calls for people to submit their lives to Jesus. The book of Revelation is all about this is what happens as we try to more and more submit our lives to Jesus as the world is going to crap around us. Everything revolves around Jesus, right? Do you want to know what your main takeaway of any sermon I give should be? Submit yourselves to Christ. Submit yourselves to him. Let him be glorified in your life. Do what he calls you to do. Guys, if we do that, he will be glorified. Maybe not in ways that we understand, maybe not in ways that we'll see, maybe not in ways that we'll imagine, but he will be glorified, and that is glorious. That's what we want to see. So as we go throughout this week, continue to consider, how can you submit your life to Christ? What do you hold on to that you have not given to him yet? What? should be his and is not. It could be a person you need to forgive. It could be your finances. It could be your kids. It could be the concept of having a like boyfriend or girlfriend. It could be anything. I want you to stop and think about what is it that if Jesus were to say, I want that thing right now, I would immediately respond no with. What's that thing? and ask him to take it. Submit it to him. We must decrease that he must increase. We must die so that he might live. Because we want to glorify him. Amen? He deserves all the glory and all the power and all the honor forever. Do we have communion elements? Thanks, Zach. Did Jake have anybody get ready to do communion today? Sweet. I'm going to have you do communion then.
Does it work better than the last one? <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Um, so the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that God loves us, and that's why he made us, to have a relationship with us, to love us, and that we might love him. But we said, you know what, God, that sounds really great, but I'm going to do my own thing. And we turned away from him, and we broke that relationship. <clears throat> but he didn't want the story to end there. He sent his son to die for us, that or that relationship would be restored. And we simply have to have faith, place our faith in him, and believe the story of the gospel, and accept Christ as the propitiation for our sins. So I thought it would be appropriate, since we're on... Um, the series of women in leadership in the Bible to uh, discuss Esther, um, who we've been talking about in youth group, and uh, all my youth girls are, are getting a little excited. So, um, in uh, in Esther, so the the basic or the basis of the story is that uh, the the Jewish people are taken captive by the Babylonians, and so they're they're living in the Babylonian Empire, and you know, empire after empire comes, and eventually we get to the Persian Empire. And Esther is a Jewish captive, because they were kind of like assimilated into the culture at the time. But So she's living in Susa, and her parents are killed um, through some you know, historic event. And uh, her, she's being raised by her, I think it's her uncle, Mordecai. And the king, um, King Xerxes, or I don't even know how to pronounce the other version of his name. But King Xerxes, um, he... Uh, pretty much fires his wife uh, because he wasn't pleased with her. And so he's looking, the king is, uh, you know, he's back on the market. And so he has his eunuchs gather up all the, you know, beautiful young ladies of the kingdom. And Esther is included in that, um, in that group. And so, you know, long story short, Esther becomes queen of Persia. <clears throat> and this guy shows up on the scene, I think somehow connected with the death of Esther's parents, um, but real bad guy. Um, his name is Haman, or Hey Man, as we like to say in uh, youth group. But uh, he shows up, decides he wants to concoct uh, a plan to kill all the Jews. And so Mordecai gets word of this and um, tells Esther about it, um, who is now the queen. And he um, exhorts Esther to go to the king to stop this plot. And so she's, at first she's a little scared because she's like, you know, if I try to approach a king, I could die. And, uh, but eventually she does. Um, the king grants her favor, and she's able to thwart the plan of Haman. And Haman, um, in, in poetic justice, is, uh, you know, killed on the gallows that he made for Mordecai. And what Haman was, was plotting um, was a... You know, it was supposed to, in the whole entire Persian Empire, um, was supposed to be, you know, this rise up of, of people to kill all the Jews and then, like, just completely wipe them out. And so um, the tide turned, and the Jews actually rose up and defended themselves and defeated their attackers. And so this was called, um, there, there, as, as uh, I think it was like the day after this happened, everybody was feasting and celebrating their victory and. The, uh, they called it the, the Feast of Purim, um, which came from uh, the word uh, 
pure, 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 something like that, which was the casting of lots, which is how Haman had determined this day. And so Haman's plan, casting the lots, determined this day to destroy the Jewish people, actually completely turned around on its head so that the Jewish people actually succeeded on this day. And it's kind of the point, one of the purposes of the book of Esther, why it was written, was to um, commemorate this day that um, Esther... Uh, you know, was able to, you know, she, she, she took courage um, in God and, and in, um, you know, his ability to save the Jewish people. And in the end, that led to, you know, the salvation of all Jewish people within that, you know, kingdom. And so we were in youth group, we were trying to draw some parallels between, okay, where, how does the gospel, you know, um, fit in with this story? And so, you know, God's love for his people, you know, he saved a remnant of his people, you know, despite the fact that they were, you know, attacked and, and captured and taken into captivity. Um, you know, we see story after story, you know, like with Daniel and Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, in, in being in captivity in that time and how God loved them and cared for them despite their circumstances. And then, you know, with, with our broken relationship with God, we've got Haman. And, you know, in, in uh, Sunday school this morning, I was reminded of, um, you know, Chris was talking about Romans. In Romans chapter 1, he's talking about how Paul is describing all these wicked people. And then he completely flips it around and says, you who judge these people, you're no different. You do the same things. And so, just like Haman, do we not also plot and have evil in our hearts towards, you know, one another, towards our, our fellow man? And so our relationship with God is broken as a, you know, representation of that. But um, as, a, as a representation of Christ and what he did, um, Esther surrenders her to the possibility of death. She, hand, she, she lays down her life so that she can, in, in order to uh, save the lives of the Jewish people, not knowing the outcome, but she surrenders her life completely and says, um, I think the phrase that she says in there is, if I, if I perish, I perish. So she was willing to give up her life um, to death for the sake of the entire Jewish remnant. And so it's you know, a representation of Christ and what he's done for us. And, um, of course, the, uh, the people, let me, uh, let me read um, this. Uh, this is the last part of Esther. It says, um, this is after the, the Jews rose up and, and had victory over their enemies. It says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned, from them from, turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness Days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And so, in their, to, to express their faith and their trust in God and, and to recognize what he had done for them, they um, created this day of feasting. And I thought it was a really easy parallel to draw with communion and the fact that Christ, he took the bread and he, said, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood which has been poured out for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And so as we, as we uh, partake in communion this morning, I want you to think about why we do this. And 
taking this, the, the bread and the cup and, um, you know, even though we don't believe in transubstantiation, um, you know, the, the, the principle that Christ gave himself unto death for us. And uh, as, as Eden taught me, um, you know, on Thursday in youth group, that this is not only a ritual, but this is, this is, a, um, this is an opportunity for us together as believers, as a church, to celebrate and to be bonded together with one another. Um, in unity as, a, as, as the body of Christ, as the church. So um, let us rejoice as we uh, and celebrate and feast together as we take communion um, and remember what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus Christ to become a man to, um, to set aside his um, divinity and deity to uh, approach you as a man on this earth and to honor you and glorify you um, as, though, um, as though he were not equal to you, though, though he was and he was sinless and he did not deserve to die but willingly gave up his life for us. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross for us. Lord, I pray that as we partake in communion this morning that you would... Um, just open our hearts toward, to you and towards one another. Lord, may this be a, um, an opportunity for us to reflect on the gospel story and how you are working that out in our lives today. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.